Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety, and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Today on the podcast, we have Andrew Drew Nowicki. He is with the Department of Defense's Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office. We've had some of his colleagues on before on the podcast. Drew, welcome to the pod. Hey, Alan. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So why don't you describe your position at CDAO? So the Chief Digital AI Office within the Office of Secretary of Defense, I'm what they call an ADA team lead. And ADA, the acronym stands for the AI Data Acceleration Initiative. This was an initiative that the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen Hicks, established sometime in 2021. And just to provide a little bit more context to the ADA initiative, basically what it established was a government lead at each of the commands, along with joint staff, managing a small team of data scientists. When I say small, it could actually be significantly large, depending on which combatant command they're aligned to and the efforts there. But this was something that Dr. Hicks established in order to improve data quality, also understand data holdings at each of his respective organizations, and to help with new AI technologies as well. So I'm the embedded ADA team lead at the joint staff. And so you started out DOD as a squadron commander a couple of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So it was actually an interesting period of time because it was during COVID while I was also at Project Maven concurrently. But yes, I can share a little bit more about that. So during the timeframe of roughly 2020 to 21, I was uh, assigned to Project Maven, which was cut through organization within OSD, working on a number of different AI projects and technologies. And at the same time, I was also selected to be a squadron commander of a unique United States Air Force Communications Squadron, which was outside the DC area, was actually located down in Florida. And this would have been in a role as what they call a traditional reservist. So the opportunity was to lead an organization of about 89 people or so, plus some contractors. Uh, And this was also during the peak of COVID. So maintaining readiness as well as good order and discipline was very complicated, especially with the limited in-person drills that we had with the large military formation there. So significantly relied on some of the technological tools that were available to us to help with accountability and also with some of the force conservation protocols. Also kind of unique was since I'm already on active duty orders with Project Maven, I was uh, available on a regular basis to the unit in Florida for any command leadership needs and questions. So it was kind of neat to not have to just rely on the, the drill weekends, but also to be on call for any other circumstances as they popped up. Oh, interesting. Well, at least Florida was a little bit, you could get out a li- and get out in the air a little bit more during COVID down there, so, <laughs> as opposed to D.C., right? Oh, absolutely. It was night and day difference between uh, flying down there, leaving the D.C. area and getting down there. But once arriving on the military installation, you know, the stringent policies with protocols were followed. But yeah, outside the airport. Didn't think about that. But for that time for the airport to the, to the base, you know, it was like freedom, right? You could get a haircut. You could. You could also actually go to a diner with uh, a few more people in it than what DC had at the time. 
So we were talking right before about the EU AI Act. So um, we've been talking a little bit on the pod here. And why don't you give your take on it and how you're seeing it? And, and actually, we didn't do the disclaimer. You are first representing yourself here, not your uh, organization. Yeah, let me go back to that. Thanks for pointing that out. So just wanted to mention that from today's perspective, I'm participating as a private citizen and not in any official capacity. Therefore, please let all my remarks be individual remarks and not represent the views of the U.S. government or the DOD. So EU AI Act. Let's talk about that a little bit. So this is a hot topic because it's still kind of in a dynamic state. Nothing's been finally agreed upon, but what I've been tracking throughout the last couple of weeks and even as recent as this week is seems to be progressing in an iterative fashion. And as of last Friday, the EU Commission agreed upon post AI Act rulebook. However, the EU AI Act will still need to be formally approved by the European Parliament. And I think that's set to take place between now and sometime in April. It also was interesting that some profound kind of uh, discussion around it with establishing an expert group. And this would be comprised of subject matter experts familiar with the EU member countries, authorities, and rules. And then this should also help navigate between the proposed AI Act and some of the other EU regulations that are out there. I also found something interesting about the proposed act as it stands today, which is the flexibility offers for member countries to adopt more restrictive rules and safeguards. Some of the topics that kind of pertain to the functional areas where flexibility might be needed pertain to like facial recognition and also things such as emotional recognition, additional privacy considerations there. So you'd be allowed as a member country to amp up the restrictions in those two areas and it wouldn't be a violation of EU standards. Exactly. I think a current proposal is offers that flexibility exactly as you stated. So, and I can think of a few countries that might want to do that just based on their policies and stringence towards kind of governance. It's going to be a complicated situation over there for companies trying to figure out how to navigate all the different rules. And in contrast here, we've done the AI executive order, so no legislation on our side yet. Are you guys working on implementation at this point? So the AI executive order is actually quite interesting. I don't know if you've taken a look at the full version or just the the highlights, but I kind of think about the end of October, early November, it was really AI week. Yeah, the UK summit, right? Yeah, there were things going on on the international front, and there were also things going on here on the domestic side. On the domestic side, certainly you had the executive order that was published in, in late October. Shortly thereafter, the updated DOD data analytics and AI adoption strategy also came out, which I'd like to also hit on maybe during today's discussion. But the AI executive order, I thought, was very comprehensive in the sense of what areas it touched upon and also addressing coordinating offices within the whole of government. The other piece of it that was really important was, especially as a private citizen, was the the privacy aspect of it as well. So in it, there was some citation that to limit and mitigate any kind of algorithmic model discrimination. There would be training, technical assistance, coordination between the Department of Justice and federal civil rights offices on the best practices for investigating and prosecuting civil rights violations related to AI. I thought that was very important for just one example of where his lawful and ethical aspect remains immutable when it comes to a new tool or technology such as AI. And then also with regards to perhaps the implementation of such technologies, while not a lawyer, I certainly agree with the, I, the notion that there should be increased governance in terms of where there's heightened risk factors with intended use. Uh, the DOD actually also 
updated something recently. This was not during the AI week, but uh, a few months before that, which was their directive on autonomy and weapon systems, which was DoD Directive 3000.09. One of the significant changes to that directive pertains to autonomous and semi-autonomous weapon systems that will be designed to allow commanders and operators to exercise appropriate levels of human judgment over the use of force, which emphasizes that we're not at a point where we're going to remove the human level review from these applications that have uh, intended use of force within them. I think that's a really important point to make. I think a lot of people have this, the regular citizen who might not know as much about this area thinks that there already are weapons out there that are kind of working on their own. You know, obviously DOD has done a lot of thinking about this and they have, as you mentioned, directives and things to follow that uh, are pretty precise on these points. Yeah, I think it's especially important for industry and, and the general public to be aware of such changes so that they kind of understand where we're at in the phases of AI implementation and that we're not, you know, at the, the final aspects of it, but we're still in an area where human level review and human in the loop is certainly required with a lot of these technologies still. So let's go back. You talked a little bit about the DoD data analytics and AI adoption strategy. Talk a little bit about that and the Vaultus concept baked in there. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the AI week that we had, both globally for that matter. So sometime in early November, there was a, a heavy lift that revised the DoD data analytics and AI adoption strategy. And this was a pretty meaningful progress from the last DoD data strategy that was published. It still took into consideration what they call the Baltus framework, which is to ensure that data is visible, accessible, understandable, linked, trustworthy, interoperable, and secure. So that's for the acronym Baltus there. But it also progressed things a little bit further in terms of what's really needed now within a department beyond the quality data. And I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at it, but there also is a, a really good schematic and description of what they call the AI hierarchy of needs. I love that concept because it's like Maslow had his hierarchy and now AI does too. I love it. Exactly. So with the foundational aspect to it is the quality data. And I think when I mentioned the ADA initiative, that certainly fits the theme of understanding what data holdings you have, understanding what's authoritative in terms of the data and understanding what data still needs to be conditioned because you may want to apply it later to a tool that you're developing. So at the foundational level, you have the quality data, you have the governance built upon that, you have the insightful advanced analytics and metrics built in on top of that layer. And then at the very pinnacle, you have the responsible AI aspect of the tool that you're developing. And some other aspects that I thought was interesting that I'll share regarding the updated strategy had to do with the digital transformation to support decision advantage. I think almost every single one of your DoD guests has probably mentioned the terms decision advantage since that contributes directly to the combined joint all-domain command and control effort. The other aspects of the updated policy also key in on the effective decentralized data management for a federated environment. And if I could expand upon that, I think the concept here really pertains to looking at a data mesh concept or data as a product. So not thinking of things in terms of vendor lock or, or limitations with how the government's data is used and then later tools that are built within it, but keeping things organized in a federated environment manner where you have API connections or other automatic connections to different products that are being built out there. So looking at things principally as data as a product. Another interesting piece to this strategy 
was also the overall impact that we'll have to the components of the near DoD. So there was actually some homework that was described in the strategy, which was a data call within 60 days of its publication so that DoD components will actually designate their team or office of primary responsibility for implementing the strategy and also identifying any other teams or offices that have contingent responsibilities or where there might be some other dependencies. After analyzing the goals of this strategy, the component leaders may determine that multiple teams will be responsible for implementation. So I thought that was good, that it wasn't just a strategy for the purposes of putting out a strategy, but also some feedback from component organizations on how they plan to implement. Yeah, that's great. You know, we did talk about a decision advantage. That's important to the framework here, because I think it does emphasize that human in the loop, right? So the point is to use AI to get the data, to get the analytics, to help the actual commander or the person in the field making the decision maker, whoever that is, to have that decision advantage in the moment. So it really is like a, a human-centric strategy, not a not an autonomous strategy. So really interesting distinction for people. Yeah, I think also with that, you still have human-centered design approaches to all of this work for the most part. So when you're looking at the UI UX systems that are out there, the user interface, user experience approach to tools and new tools, you're not removing the human operator or the human being. You're still at the current state. You're still involving them for decision making. So, you know, there are weapon systems that are machine to machine for the purposes like data transport or other aspects. But for key decision making, especially if it has to do with risk or financial matters or anything where it's a heightened need for a human to be in a loop, then you're still looking at things in that human-centered design approach. And I was curious about your data as a product. Can you go a little deeper on that? Like, what does that mean to like a user or to the, the person consuming that that's distinguished? So I think to elaborate on it a little bit more, I'll use something that was recently in the news and then also going back to that data mesh example. So I think in the past, there's probably been a few programs where government data was what they call vendor locked, meaning tools were built using government data and built in a way where it was in a vertical silo and whatever tool that was, that widget, you wouldn't be able to integrate it with other data nodes that are out there or other tools for that matter. So the idea of creating more integration with tools that are built with, you know, as data products through this data mesh, data fabric approach allows you to use things such as APIs, application program interfaces, so that if you have two different tools built from two different vendors using government data, they're still compatible with one another in terms of using the workflows or the metadata from one aspect to the other and showing like a broader picture within the overall ecosystem. So another piece of this that recently has come up with the Defense Innovation Board is proposing that I think for the National Defense Authorization Act of 2025, that there be some language inserted into that document, identifying that government retains control of their data and to limit the instances to where you may have tools that are developed with vendor lock where the government loses control of its data or doesn't have the traceability to what a vendor had used to build out a tool. Right. And this is a key concept we talked a little bit about with some of your colleagues too, is that the government is, you know, given that it has unique uses and uses like custom design software, always have the ecosystem that exists for, you know, off the shelf SAF software. 
where there's automatically going to be an API and ways to interconnect all this data that's evolved sort of out of the Silicon Valley tech system. You're kind of operating, you have some of that, right, obviously, but you're also operating in a world that's completely outside of that system as well. Absolutely. And I think another aspect that's changed with the technology is the compute environment, because as you have all these different cloud providers, and then with the rollout of the joint warfighting cloud capability that identifies that there's four core cloud providers for DoD, and I think there'll probably be future cloud providers perhaps added onto that. But working in that compute environment, you now are able to use data model architectures known as, you know, canonical schemas so that as you're building these tools, the compute environment is actually servicing the tool development because of uh, the affordances that are offered with cloud compute that perhaps being in a server stack separated from that larger federated ecosystem, you wouldn't have those connections. Whereas now with cloud compute, you certainly do. Yeah, that's interesting that that migration to the cloud opens up that not standardization, but it's kind of the way of doing business there that is available. And it'll be interesting to see how it transforms like we're looking at now, when are the models? And so we maybe we don't want to mention any specific vendor here, but one has released something on the government cloud for a uh, generative AI system. And pretty soon there'll be multiple of those, right? And it's pretty exciting to start, you know, I've been using it in my business, but it's hard to use it with clients when the tools aren't available on the FET clouds or the DOD cloud. My understanding, at least one is now up and operational. Another aspect to share and expand upon is what the ADA team leads and teams out there are, are working on, because I think it certainly fits with the, what's in vogue right now with generative AI and the large language models. So if you can take a step back and think of the timeframe of 2021 and understanding that AI hierarchy of needs with the importance of foundational quality data, as these ADA teams were designed and rolled out to the combatant commands, they were working alongside their chief data officers and aligned to the efforts of the CDOs at each of the combatant commands. In addition to the priorities of the chief data officers, the ADA teams have also worked on and supported what's known as the guide series, which is the global information dominant experiments. And there's been about eight iterations of guide so far. It originally started at NORAD Northcom and then quickly got the attention of the Deputy Secretary of Defense and, and has now been a multi-command global integrated type of experiment. And then also the department stood up what they call Task Force Lima, which I, I think you might have discussed in a previous podcast. So this one's, this task force is focused on generative AI via the applications of large language models. So the ADA team leads and, and teams out there are also working on different use cases. Some of them may be unique to their specific combatant command and others that may have enterprise impact. So that also fits the broader effort with ADA teams at the combat commands. Yeah, well, that global information dominance is like the coolest, that's the coolest name in AI and the government. But really it's about what, it's experiments about how to use AI in the field. Is that the basic idea? It certainly helps with decision advantage and a way towards learning more about what combined joint all-domain command control really means. So. It fits and aligns to that effort. And also one of the areas that maybe it's not as well discussed in the media is the, the joint warfighting concept. So within the joint warfighting concept, you have seven warfighting functions that are all joint. You have command and control, you have information, you have intelligence, fires, 
movement and maneuver, and then you also have protection and sustainment. So that's another area that Ada teams, as well as the guide series, is learning a lot of lessons on, which is the joint warfighting concept and each of those respective joint warfighting function areas. And how AI would be applied across them. And so when you're looking out now, I mean, some of the things I'm looking at right now is going into 24. It's interesting. We're starting to see other capable models like Google Gemini was released. So that's another chat GPT-4 kind of competitor. And we're starting to see the start of sort of more focused models, maybe those models moving to mobile, being more streamlined, maybe not quite as powerful, but more available. And it feels like over this next year, we're in a couple of years, we're probably seeing going past just the hype of AI or generative AI to, you know, changing the UI UX so that it's more integrated and, and easier to use. So it feels like adoption is kind of going to be the theme over the next couple of years. But as you look at it at DOD, you know, what are you kind of seeing over the next few years that you think it's going to be like the, the trends or the interesting places for AI? So that's a great question. I think just reading the tea leaves and also learning a little bit more about the outcomes on some of these experiments and prototypes, I can see much more edge use cases, meaning looking at AI capabilities, not all domestic where you have large data centers and the compute immediately available, but also looking more at the edge in terms of, you know, in different maritime environments, whether it's underwater or on the water, also in areas where the reachback support in terms of compute capability is limited, where you might be relying on a compute edge device like an Amazon Snowball or, you know, an HCI device from Microsoft Azure, and also demand signal with that at the edge where military formations are, are relying on more deployable compute environment capability than what's currently being tested on here, where you have immediate resourcing available. The other thing too, and I think this was mentioned during a previous podcast, but we're talking large language models today, but there might be a need for some microservices with small language models as well, where individual laptops or smaller compute devices, a couple of GPUs versus a hundred GPUs in terms of graphic processor units could actually assist with running a LLM or a small language model for that matter. I don't know if you listen to Bloomberg News, but I think AI is mentioned like every 10 minutes, if not less than that. And I really enjoy it as a technologist, just hearing, you know, AI being thrown out there kind of reminds me of a couple of years ago when, when cyber became kind of a household word as well. But part of that discussion, and maybe it will come into play in the next couple of days or weeks is, is robotics too, because I think another natural step forward is looking at not just what can be done via a large language model, but also looking at how AI will be implemented and integrated into robotics and looking at the development of different robotic use cases as well, serving the public good, whether it's uh, in the medical community or whether it's in manufacturing or in other industrial workspaces. But that's something else I can see uh, on the military side as well, having a demand signal in the future. Interesting. And as we're kind of moving toward these new advancements, kind of any advice or call to action you would have for policymakers or, or the public itself around AI? 
Well, I appreciate that question. I certainly would like to not comment on maybe the policymaking side, although it would be great to have more staffers and more elected officials out of the tech arena join politics and pursue that public service. I think that would certainly help with some of the key decision-making in the future when it comes to enacting new laws and also looking at privacy and balancing all those things. But as far as a call to action to the general public, I would like to encourage individuals with any aspirations of public service to consider government employment for any period of time, whether it's uh, a short one, two-year period, or whether it's something that's a calling in its uh, full career. But this is a critical moment in designing the future work within the U.S. government and within the Department of Defense that is enabled by AI and other technologies. So as part of this transforming workforce, I would mention that the Office of Personnel Management has published several new work roles within the U.S. government and DOD that are part of this larger digital talent management effort. Some of these examples of new work roles include things such as AI adoption specialists, AI innovation leaders, AI risk and ethics specialists, more technical AI testing and evaluation specialists, data architects, data stewards, to complement the already existing uh, technical roles such as cyber work roles and some of the STEM positions that are out there. I also think that in comparing to some of the information and messaging in the AI executive order, there was also a citation about chief AI officers and responsible AI officials. These are additional positions, much more executive and, and, and hierarchy where they're being created within U.S. government. And many of these positions are directly transferable to the private sector. So I'm seeing cases of this where you've had CIOs, chief information officers within DOD or the military departments that leave to go back to industry or to go to industry for their first time. And they're already transitioning to jobs that are either the same title or just a slight modification in the title on what they're doing within the private sector. So we'd like to implore folks that consider government service to really look into these roles and pursue them. That's right. You guys hire and train them and then they steal them. But I do think, you know, and increasingly, hopefully, I would urge policymakers to continue to expand opportunities for people to get into government service more easily, more special hiring authority. There are multiple examples of that. There are new on-ramps in the government all the time to get people in because it can be kind of daunting going through the regular HR process. But that, to me, would be a huge thing for Congress to give a little more authority for special hiring, term hires, those kinds of things uh, to help with that. Yeah, I 100% agree. I actually, in terms of like enterprise use cases, time to hire on, on the HR side is a very important use case that the department's looking at, you know, at an enterprise scaled manner. And then also acquisitions, right? And I know CDAO with uh, individuals like Barney Evangelista and others have really created novel ways and expedient ways to look at different tools and concepts that non-traditional vendors would like to share with DOD and break the normal acquisition cycle. I think that's part of the spirit of why things such as OTAs, the other transaction authorities, have come into play is to really look at what's available within that general toolkit that we can leverage or emphasize to make things faster. I don't know if you know the history. I was just thinking about that when you said OTAs. OTAs got really big a few years ago. They were obviously used during COVID and stuff. But when the cloud came in, 
there was sort of like a lot of activity on OTAs and there was a lot, there was a long procurement saga around cloud procurement and OTAs at DOD that we don't need to get into. But it was interesting to me, like these were invented decades ago to help with maybe the first round of technological advancement that built Silicon Valley as ways to get to these non-traditional firms in our, in, during the Cold War. And it felt like people forgot about them, and I'm sure they didn't, it's just my perception, but it felt like people forgot about them for about 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden the cloud AI comes in and it's like, oh, OTA, it's the new thing, you know? I completely agree. I think there's a few things within that larger arsenal of tools that have uh, been overlooked or, or maybe not passed from like generation of worker to generation of worker availability. OTAs is a great example, the way you mention it. And another one are HQEs, which are highly qualified experts. The HQE positions have been around for a very long time. I think only more recently, like in the last five years, the military departments, along with the principal staff assistants within DOD, have started to leverage hiring authority for HQEs so they can bring in some talent from industry, especially in these very important positions not only with strategy, but also with the implementation side of the technology and the tools to ensure that you're smoke testing what you're being offered when it comes to, to some of the pitches out there by different contractors and by different vendors. Excellent. So as we're wrapping up today, I'd be curious if you had the opportunity to take anyone alive or dead to launch for in the AI world, who would it be? Wow, that is a difficult question because there are so many individuals that come to mind, especially distinguished individuals within the tech space right now. So I think one individual, because I just caught a little bit of his interview from, I think, October timeframe, is the key founder and CEO of the Anthropic, Dario Amade. I don't know if you've followed his presentations or, or his public speaking, but he's a pretty fascinating individual just because of the history of being at OpenAI and then leaving OpenAI and establishing Anthropic. The reason why I think he'd be an interesting person to take to launch or just to, to connect with and chat with is just solely based on what he's doing within that company and some of the contrarian uh, ways of looking at things when it comes to the safety and, and safeguards. He is a big proponent of trust and safety, and I think that's part of the culture at Anthropic as well. He also has started to use different aspects of what he's calling constitutional AI regarding the outputs of some of the tools that they're building. For example, this constitutional AI concept, I think it brings in a few things from the UN Declaration of Human Rights, other inputs based on principles and respect for copyright infringement and the legal uh, aspects of data that's out there. So I think that's kind of interesting that they have a constitutional AI within the company. And also, this is something else that grabbed my attention when I heard him describing it, which is this board members of the company. So he's looking at kind of a self-sustaining future board composition where he'll have individuals that are AI safety experts, maybe even AI safety careerists at that point, national security experts, and philanthropic individuals. And he wants to self-sustain the board for the company with individuals that come from those facets of work or those areas of industry, which I, I find very interesting. In light of the recent news on some of the companies and also some of the crypto debacles that are out there, I thought it'd be interested to hear his thoughts on effective altruism as well, because I think coming from the Valley, he may have a different perspective on what it really means to follow that philosophy of effective altruism. 
Excellent. And we really appreciate having you on today. And anything you would urge people to check out, CDO website or anything like that, you think is a good place to follow what you guys are doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think to shamelessly throw out a plug for the Tradewinds website. So if you are a small company or a non-traditional type of vendor looking to showcase some of your potential tools to DoD, I would certainly start at that website. And there's different ways to record and upload a presentation of whatever tool you'd like to share with DoD. And it's pretty responsive in terms of you will hear back, you will get an acknowledgement that your content was received. So I'd like to mention that website. I'd also just for either private citizens out there or aspiring future government employees to take a look at the updated DOD data analytics and AI strategy to kind of understand what trajectory the DOD is on when it comes to data and AI tools. Also the digital talent management piece. I think whether you're looking at it broadly outside of DOD, just within the government, OPM has those positions I've referenced available to do a little bit more deeper due diligence on do you have a degree or do you have a certification that aligns to perhaps a job opportunity there. And then also look at the DOD's digital talent management because there might be more specific organizations that you want to support with a specific job role. So I would encourage individuals to take a look at those websites and resources. And then also the AI executive order, just to understand and maybe dismiss some of the, the noise out there with regards to where we're at in the movie with AI today, to get familiar with how we're moving, how we're progressing, and still balancing all the privacy acts and liberties that are out there for individuals. Great. So Drew, thanks so much for being on, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. AI Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.